Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 9th. Today, a significant development in Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. And the Trump administration is quietly seeking a broad rollback of federal civil rights protections. My fellow Americans. Good evening. My fellow Americans. Tonight, I am speaking to you because there is a growing humanitarian and security crisis at our southern border. Every day, Customs and Border Patrol agents encounter thousands of illegal immigrants trying to enter our country. Sadly, much of what we heard from President Trump throughout this sense of shutdown has been full of misinformation and even malice. This week, most of Washington has been obsessed with the ongoing shutdown drama. Trump's fight to get his wall, his big Oval Office speech, questions of how and when the government will ever reopen. For me, though, I am continuing to keep my eye on the Russia story. And we, in fact, have gotten some pretty interesting and important revelations, mostly in court this week. I'm Rosalind Helderman. I'm a political investigative and enterprise reporter. And this week, Ross has been reporting on an accidental revelation that actually tells us a lot about the Trump campaign's interactions with Russia back in 2016. I just cannot emphasize enough how astounding this would have been for us to have learned, you know, back in June of 2016, when we were first reporting on this kind of strained relationship between the Trump campaign and Russia. I mean, this is really amazing. The chairman of a major political campaign sharing internal polling data with someone who apparently has links to the intelligence services of a hostile foreign power. And how they found out about that is almost as interesting as the information itself. Okay, so we found out about this, like, in the weirdest way possible, which is that people may remember that Paul Manafort pleaded guilty back in the fall. To two federal counts, and most significantly, he agreed to cooperate in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. And so he's had this cooperation agreement with the government. And then back in, I think, December, the special counsel's office went to the judge and said, Paul Manafort has been lying to us. Former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort repeatedly lied to investigators even after agreeing to cooperate with the Russia investigation. They said his cooperation deal was off. It was over because even though he had been meeting with them over and over again, he was still telling them lies. And so they've been kind of talking through in court what were the nature of these lies he has still been telling. But the special counsel's office has done that entirely under seal. So we know they say that Paul Manafort has been lying, but the real substance of those lies have been hidden from us. And that's a big question we had when it was first announced that he was lying. Everyone was like, well, what did he lie about? And there wasn't really any any information They kind of gave us some categories of things he had lied about, but the details were totally hidden and we just didn't know. Well, so yesterday, Paul Manafort's team 
team kind of filed something. And I should say they didn't quite say that the information Manafort had given was inaccurate, but they kind of were offered excuses. They were saying he was forgetful, his memory was fuzzy, he didn't mean to lie, and they intended to redact their discussion of the actual nature of the lies themselves, but they did it really, really badly. So when you first pull up the document, you can see these black boxes, but if you just run your cursor over it and hit copy, suddenly the text is revealed. The text is still there. And the text is still there underneath the black box. So this Seems was like really move. poor lawyer tradecraft. And so that's how we find out that one of the topics that the uh, special counsel's office says that Paul Manafort lied about Still, even after all of this, he's sitting there getting debriefed. He still denies to them that he gave this polling data to Konstantin Kalimnik until they set forward evidence in front of him that he actually did so. So because of this accidental unredaction, we now know that basically Mueller's team is accusing Manafort of trying to pass off polling data to people in Russia. Yes, that is as weird as it sounds. Well, let's start with, like, who was he giving this information to and how is he accused of delivering that information? So we do know that he had a lot of contact with this Russian guy who had been a longtime friend and associate of his throughout the campaign. And they actually met in person during the campaign at least twice. But the who, in some ways, is the much more interesting question. Paul Manafort was this international political consultant, and he had spent about 10 years working as a political operative in Ukraine. And he hired to work in that office a young Russian guy with incredible language skills named Konstantin Kalimnik. And Kalimnik started off as his translator in Kiev. And over time, we understand, became really kind of his right-hand man. We know that Kalimnik was a Soviet Army veteran. And he had told people in his life in Kiev that he had spent time in military intelligence. And so it was kind of always this question, who was Konstantin Kalimnik? And then uh, sometime, I think, last year, the special counsel's office dropped this amazing court document where they talked about Kalimnik and said that the FBI had actually assessed that he has ongoing ties to intelligence, even in the campaign. So all this time that Paul Manafort is talking to him, meeting with him, sharing information with him, Konstantin Kalimnik was, according to our government, still linked to Russian intelligence. But here's what I don't understand about what makes this new thing really important. Like, even if... Paul Manafort is taking polling data and passing it off to various people in Russia that maybe they're passing it off to other important people in Russia. Maybe they're passing it off directly to Vladimir Putin. Like, what does it matter? It's it's polling data. I mean, like, we see polling data in the newspaper every day about, like, who's up, who's down, who's looking good, who's which candidate is the most popular or the least popular. Like, why is that a big deal? Yeah. I mean, in this story, we always get one piece of information and four more questions, right? So the big question is, why did they want the polling data and what did they use it for? And at this point, we just don't know the answer to that. But there are a few really intriguing possibilities. One possibility is that Paul Manafort was trying to show the Russians that Donald Trump had a chance, that this campaign was worth 
their effort, their money. It happens to be that there's some reporting that the data was shared in the spring of 2016. That's right in the time frame when the Russians first hack the DNC and John Podesta's email account. We also know that the Russians had this really sophisticated social media effort, the fake Facebook ads, the efforts to pose as Americans online, and a lot of the messages they spread really cleverly picked up on known weaknesses of Hillary Clinton, known topics of interest to conservatives. And so they may well have wanted this kind of internal data to better understand our political system, the weaknesses and strengths of our candidates to properly mold this social media campaign in a way that would be most appealing to Americans. Interesting. So even if this polling data isn't in and of itself like state secrets. Though my sense is that in campaigns, like you actually do keep your internal polling data like pretty close to the chest. But regardless of like what the polling data said, it just helps create a greater picture of like this could have been one part of collusion between the campaign and Russia. I mean, polls are very expensive and campaigns do them for a reason because they help them mold messages. They help them decide where to focus their energies. And so, you know, I always want to be very careful to acknowledge what we don't know. For all we know, this was totally useless information and Paul Manafort was just sharing it to kind of brag about his big new job in America. But there is a possibility here that he was really providing them the keys, the keys they needed to properly influence and sway our election. William Barr, Trump's nominee for U.S. Attorney General, is expected to have his confirmation hearing next week. On Wednesday, he went to Capitol Hill to meet with Republicans. Senator Lindsey Graham said that Barr told him he has confidence in special counsel Robert Mueller and plans to allow him to complete the Russia investigation. There's a legal theory at the heart of many civil rights issues in America, and it's called disparate impact. The idea is that there are many policies and practices that aren't necessarily intended to be discriminatory, but they still have the effect of hurting one group more than another. So disparate impact comes up all the time. It's sort of amazing how often it comes up in so many different aspects of American law. Laura Meckler covers education for The Post. Let me give you an example in the education context. So you might have a policy that says, you know, if you are late to school, you are punished. But in that particular school, the white students lived very close to the school and were able to get there on time pretty easily. And let's say the Asian-American students all lived in a further away part of town and they depended on a bus and the bus actually was not very reliable. In that case, there could be an argument that this policy, though not intended to discriminate, ends up hurting the Asian American students in a way that is not fair. You know, this concept goes all the way back to the 1960s when the Civil Rights Act was first passed. And it was written into the original regulations implementing the Civil Rights Act. And it was for a long time sort of not that controversial. It was just This was part of what discrimination was, that if you did something that had a discriminatory impact on a certain group of people, you weren't allowed to do that. 
But in the past several months, Laura started to learn that the Trump administration is seeking to roll back these regulations. So I started covering the education department for The Post this summer. And one of the first stories I did was about how the education department was ratcheting back its enforcement of civil rights. One of the central parts of that story was that they were no longer looking at systemic investigations. Instead, they were only looking at individual investigations. So they weren't looking, was the whole school district, was the policies at a whole school district problematic? No, they were looking at, did little Jane, little Pete, little Pedro, did they get punished wrongly? Did something happen to them that was against the discrimination laws? And in the course of reporting that, I was talking to people, and this idea of disparate impact quickly comes up as soon as you get into talking about civil rights enforcement, because that's such a key part of civil rights enforcement, and it's also something that conservatives really don't like. And so you've reported that the Trump administration has asked a lot of different agencies, not just the Department of Education, but other folks, to think about how they can scale back the use of disparate impact in whatever regulations they're enforcing. So what happened was the Justice Department asked all the people within the Civil Rights Division who are responsible for the different areas to look at what would the impact be if you scaled back disparate impact? Is it a good idea? And what would the results be? So essentially, they're not acting yet, but they're thinking about it at the Justice Department. Separately, we reported that the Education Department is looking at changing its underlying regulation that gets directly at disparate impact. And separately, we know for a fact that the Department of Housing and Urban Development has a proposed rule that would take a fresh look at disparate impact. So you essentially have across the administration in at least three different places, the Justice Department, HUD, and the Education Department, thinking going on about scaling back this idea. And if they are effective in scaling back this idea, what kind of effects would that have? It would make it much harder to file a complaint in whatever realm you're talking about, if you're talking about housing, transportation, education, to file a complaint based on disparate impact. So essentially, if you were concerned about what was happening in your community and you felt that the local authorities were promoting a policy that had a discriminatory effect on one particular group. You could not rely on the idea of using this data and this disparate impact analysis to make your case. Instead, you would need to find something closer to, say, a smoking gun, where you have an actor, you have one of the people in charge of it having the intent to discriminate. So basically, it makes it harder to prove that a policy is discriminatory or that exactly. you're being discriminated against. Exactly. You would have it just makes it harder to prove. Now some would say and rightfully so, if you are charging that somebody is being racially discriminatory, then you should have to prove that that's what they meant to do. It's not good enough just to have a numbers on a spreadsheet. You need to prove that they actually this was their plan, that you can't discriminate against someone by accident. I mean, that would be the argument on the other side. But yes, the impact would be it would be a lot harder to prove discrimination. How likely is it that this rollback in the use of disparate impact as a concept, as a legal concept, how likely is it that that's actually going to happen? Well, I think that there are two levels. I think it is definitely happening on a more of an ad hoc basis. So, for instance, you see at the education department, they're no longer routinely opening systemic investigations. So they're just not looking for it in the same way as it used to be. 
So there's definitely some of it happening already. But whether we see a wholesale rewrite of the regulations where you actually take that idea out, I don't know, because that is a big step. When you change a regulation, you have to go through a very intense period of comment. People have an opportunity to weigh in. It would probably be challenged in the courts. The challengers would say that this clearly Congress intended for a disparate impact to be part of it, or they would have stopped it long ago. Again, this has been in law for more than 50 years in these regulations. So the idea that you can just on a dime say, no, it's no longer part of the law, I think would be certainly challenged in court. So how bold they get, whether they actually try to do this or not, we'll have to see. I certainly think it's a real possibility, but I don't know if it's a probability. Well, if it is challenged in court, how would that play out? So you reported that one recent time where this came up in the Supreme Court was in 2015, where the court reaffirmed that disparate impact is a sound legal concept. But that was in 2015, and the court is different now. Absolutely. And that was a 5-4 decision with Justice Kennedy in the majority. He, in fact, wrote the decision. And he's been replaced by Brett Kavanaugh, who... We don't know where he is on this issue necessarily, but the suspicion is that he is much more likely to be sympathetic with those who do not like the disparate impact theory. This has been, even though it would be a huge change to federal law, the idea that this should be changed is a mainstream conservative view at this point. So I think that a lot of conservatives are betting that if they just pull off the Band-Aid, try to rewrite these regulations, which would be a major step, and you know use this opportunity that they have right now with a sympathetic administration, that it might just survive Supreme Court scrutiny. And now, one more thing. A story of an unlikely hat trick from Capitals hockey reporter Isabel Kershudian. I was on deadline and writing my story, hoping to get in in time so my editors here wouldn't be angry with me. And, you know, I got this email. It was a message from 38-year-old Ken Brasington, a Marine Corps vet with a very specific ask. His email started off, On December 14th, Alexander Ovechkin scored a hat-trick. A hat-trick, by the way, is when a player scores three goals in a single game. When he did, another Capitals fan threw my hat onto the ice. In most cases, I wouldn't have minded, but that hat has been to Iraq three times and Afghanistan two other times. It's a worn-out Nationals hat that means the world to me and is a daily reminder of what I've been through and my fallen brothers and sisters. Ken had heard that all of the hats that get thrown on the ice after a hat trick stay with the player who scored the goals. But even with that knowledge, Ken couldn't figure out how to actually get it back. So Isabel made some calls, and she learned that while the player who scored the hat trick doesn't actually keep all the hats, the team still held on to them, at least for a little while. And within just a few days, Isabel managed to get the hat back to Brazington. I think he was talking about putting in like a shadow box. I know he's definitely going to keep it somewhere, but I don't know if he's going to be wearing it out and about. That's it for today's show. 
Join the conversation about the stories in this episode by using the hashtag PostReports. And you can learn a lot more about the stories on today's show by going to WashingtonPost.com slash PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and The Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.